Lord, we bless you. We exalt your name, Jesus. You are our King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Father, for your mercy. Your mercy that never fails. We thank you, Father, for the wisdom and revelation of the Holy Ghost. Bless you, Father, for all the wonderful things that you've done for us and the even greater things that are yet to come. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's make our confession. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost in power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul, writing to the church, said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria, he says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, we know that the Bible says that God created man in his image after his likeness. He made him as much like himself as he could. So if God is a spirit and he created man in his image, then man is, by definition, a spirit being. You remember also in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted of the devil, he responded to the temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Folks, man belongs to the spirit realm. He's the only thing that was created in his image as a spirit being. The Bible tells us that when the angels were witnessing the creation account of the creation event, they questioned, when God said, let us make man in our own image, they questioned, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that, they, that thou hast visited him. Now I want you to think for a few moments about what that means. The angels had no idea what man was. That means for all of eternity past, for all the things that God has done, all the things that God has created, and certainly you realize that the first thing, uh, the, the creation account where God created man was not the only thing or the first thing that God's ever created. But man was never, or nothing like man was ever created before that the angels would have recognized now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, 
It says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. This word framed really means repaired. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. He says there's an unseen realm that's greater than the seen realm. There's an unseen realm or the spirit realm that is greater than the physical realm. And the reason we know it's greater than the physical realm is because the physical realm was created out of the unseen realm. Now in Genesis chapter 1, look back with me to verse of scripture that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, upon, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. As I said in Psalms, the book of Psalms, it tells us that the angels question God's creative intent. What is man that thou hast made him in your image and given him authority, delivered him unto him authority here in the earth? Now, notice in chapter 2 of Genesis, it tells us some more about God creating man. And it says in verse 7, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Let me ask you a question. Does God breathe? God doesn't breathe like we think of. Because if God needed oxygen, then he couldn't be God. He'd be dependent on something else outside of himself to exist. So here where the Bible says that God breathed into man, I'm not saying that he didn't breathe into him. But, it's not the, but God doesn't breathe the way that we think or the way that we do. We know that Jesus, after he was crucified and resurrected, ate with the disciples. But God's not dependent on food either or he couldn't be God. If God required oxygen to breathe, then there'd be a lot of his creation that he couldn't even access. He couldn't be the God over space outer space that is he couldn't be God over the galaxies and the millions of planets and stars and other things that are in outer space if he was dependent on oxygen but God is the self-existent one he is the source and the origin of all things and he's not dependent on anything outside of himself now, this is the realm that God brought man into. He made it man in his image and after his likeness. And those words likeness and image really don't have too much to do with the physical appearance. But it indicates to us, tells us, 
that he created God as uh, God created man as an exact copy of himself. Now Paul talks about the inner man and the outer man a good deal in the letters that he wrote to the church. He wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He wrote to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he said, but though the outward man perish or is decaying, the inward man is renewed day by day. So he makes a distinction between the outward man and the inward man. Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. He talks about not putting all of their emphasis on the outward appearance, but to be adorned, for the hidden man of the heart to be adorned with the word of God, the perfect law of love. Now, the hidden man of the heart that Peter refers to has got to be the spirit of man. But what's he hidden from? He's hidden from the five physical senses. It's an amazing thing to consider the billions and trillions of dollars that have been spent by mankind on physical culture, physical development, and our educational systems at their best simply relate information concerning the soul of man, the intellectual part of man. So we've got a situation where people spend inordinate amounts of money to develop physically and develop mentally, but you don't hear much about spiritual development. The church, by and large, doesn't address it. But if God has created man in his own image, a spirit being, then what would be more needful or appropriate than to develop your spirit, man? Look with me over to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. I want you to skip down with me to verse 14. Paul said, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Notice he talks about a relationship with God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's telling us that this Holy Spirit is given to each and every one of us 
as we enter the as we enter into our relationship with God and become a part of his family but how is the Holy Ghost going to relate to us how is he going to lead us notice verse 16 that we read it's by the inward witness now that inward witness simply means that God is going to direct us he's going to guide us he's going to lead us from the spirit realm not from the physical realm I know a lot of people like to pray God if you want me to do this you open the door but opening doors in this physical realm is something that Satan can do too we can't trust the guidance of the Holy Ghost that the Bible says belongs to us as children of God by looking at or considering natural things. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. First thing that the Bible tells us the Holy Ghost will lead us in is to lead us in the knowledge of God being our Father and us being the children of God. Now there's some scriptures I want you to see with me in the Old Testament that relate to the spirit realm and man's place in the spirit realm. First let's look at Daniel chapter 10. Daniel goes on a fast because he sees that the time that was prophesied for Israel to come out of bondage is coming soon. And so he begins a fast, and he's three weeks into this fast when it tells us that an angel appeared to Daniel and brought him the answer that he was seeking. And in talking to this angel, he said in verse 11, He said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for I am for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Well, the first day was three weeks earlier. Three weeks have gone by since he first prayed and asked God for the answer. So what happened? Notice verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So something was hindering the answer that Daniel was seeking from God, something was taking place, a strong force was taking place to hinder Daniel from getting his answer. This conflict or this hindrance was a conflict in the spirit realm. 
I wonder how many other times in our lives we prayed for something and it was delayed and so we gave up thinking that, well, maybe God doesn't want us to have that answer. But we have to realize that the spirit realm influences God's entrance into this physical realm. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe it is. Let me make sure I'm giving you the right reference. 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us about the king of Syria, I believe it was, that was waging war against Israel. And the king would make plans about where their encampments would be or where the troops would be placed. And Elisha was given that information by the Spirit of God. And so he would warn the king of Israel not to go to a certain place or go to a certain or take a certain path to some place because that's where the enemy was. Well, the king of Syria began to think that he had a spy in his camp because Israel always knew what they were going to do. And so he called his advisors in and presented the information to them. And he wanted to know from them how they could find out who the spy was. But one of them said that it was the prophet, talking about Elisha, that would tell their enemies, his enemies, the things that he said in his bedchamber. And so this king sent troops to capture the prophet. And the prophet had a, a, a servant named Gehazi. And this servant, well, we'll start reading in verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? The enemy's got him surrounded. And so he's asking, what, should, what are we going to do about this? And the prophet answered and said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened, his eye, opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Elisha saw them. He may have seen them, or he may have seen them in times past. But he was persuaded rightly persuaded that the spirit realm offered them protection that couldn't be seen. They went on to take all these people captive and instead of killing them, they showed them mercy and showed them love and sent them back to their own home. Now how did Elisha know that the Mountainsides were filled with chariots of fire. He couldn't see them. And until the Lord opened Gehazi's eyes, he couldn't see them either. 
But Elisha was knew, he knew from experiences, at, le- at the very least from experiences he had had before, prior experiences, and things that he saw or knew about the spirit realm, he knew they were there. One more scripture we want to look at to prove this point. It's in Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel, there is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver under thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, that means merchandising, hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. Talks about how he, he goes on to talk about how he's going to be defeated. But skip down with me to verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now these are two different people. The first one that he uh, refers to as the prince of Tyrus is the king, the man, that because of his success, he's claiming to be more than a man, but he's not. But in verse 11, this is not a man. This is the spirit being that he's referring to. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and beauty and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, and the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. So you've got a king, a natural man, who's operating and ruling over one of Israel's uh, enemy nations. But then, but there's another power that's working behind him. There's an unseen power. And this that, that refers to by the description, we have to acknowledge or recognize that he's talking about Satan himself. Who else could have been in the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden? Who else would have been the anointed cherub or was created to be the anointed cherub that covereth? A lot of times we look at what's going on in the world around us in this physical realm and we see the things that are happening and the actions that our government is taking and we can get mad about it or we can take umbrage 
at what political parties are doing and so forth. But there's a power behind them. The real enemy is not the government officials that we see that are doing evil things. The real enemy is the force that's driving them. The demonic force that influences them toward their wickedness. Folks, there is a spirit realm. It's very real. In fact, it's more real than the physical realm that we're in. This physical realm will come to pass or will come to destruction, complete and utter destruction by the spirit realm behind it. Now look with me to Luke chapter 16. I want you to see something else that Jesus talked about. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, folks, notice that in both cases, in both the reference to both of these people, it says there was a certain man. In other words, this can't be a parable. A parable is when one thing is likened unto something else. For example, Jesus uh, talked about how that, that faith was like a, a tree that would grow and flourish and so forth. This is not talking about something that's like anything else. It says that there was a certain rich man there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. That means there was a specific person that he's referring to. Verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now notice what it speaks of concerning the death of these two individuals. Verse 22 says, the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice where it talks about Lazarus was taken by the angels. His body died, but he's still alive. His body died, but the real him still exists. Very seldom does the Bible speak of death in physical terms or the end the cessation of life the death of the body is not the death of the individual both the rich man and Lazarus died but they continued to exist and in hell he talking about the rich man lift up his eyes being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things 
and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and now are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, <clears throat> there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let, him, let them hear him. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, folks, this is an Old Testament occurrence. By that I mean Jesus has not gone to the cross or been resurrected from the dead at the time that he tells about this. And so... At this time, the time of this story, heaven was not available because Jesus had not yet paid mankind's price for sin. So it tells us, <clears throat> the scripture tells us that until Jesus was raised from the dead, there were two compartments in hell. One was the place of torment where the rich man was and the other was a place of comfort. This is also referred to in Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross about paradise. When he spoke of paradise, he's talking about Abraham's bosom. Now notice that neither the rich man nor Lazarus seems to be hindered. The real them, the spirit I'm talking about, neither seem to be hindered by the lack of their body. People sometimes have questions about what things are going to be like in heaven. Will we know people that we knew here on the earth? Will we know them in heaven? The rich man seems to know Lazarus. The rich man is experiencing torment. That's not physical torment. So there's something about the spirit realm regarding hell and the place of torments that it re refers to. The rich man recognizes Abraham. We don't know how he recognizes him because Abraham had lived and died long before this guy ever came on the scene. But he's heard enough stories about Abraham to attach recognition to him. So his memory is intact. His mental faculties are intact. His emotions are intact. Not only from the torment side of things, but also for compassion for his brothers that are left on the earth and still alive. So it really doesn't seem like he's any less he meaning Lazarus or he meaning the rich man. It really doesn't tell us that he's any less of himself than he was when he's here on the earth. When Paul talked to the, wrote to the church, 
He talked about the dilemma that he was in. He had a desire to depart and be with Christ, which was far better. But he knew that the church here on the earth still needed him. So he wanted to go. He wanted to depart. He wanted to lay down this earthly body and go be with Jesus. Now, the church history tells us that when the time for Paul's death, martyrdom came, he ran to the place where they would cut his head off. He had persuaded his captors not to bind him with chains by telling them that he would submit to anything that they had, anything that they were commanded to do. And so when the day came that was appointed for Paul's death, he went running toward the place there was a rock, a certain rock, that they would stretch people's hands out and bind them so they couldn't move. And the swordsman would stand to the side and come down with the, the chopping sword to, to lap off and decapitate those that were to be killed. But instead of drawing back from it, Paul went running toward it and put himself in the position to be martyred and held on and kept himself virtually still for the executioner to, to cut off his head. Now, what would cause somebody to do that? Paul couldn't have been in any kind of quandary or have any kind of doubts about what happens when this earthly life is over. He knew what we should also know, and that is the body is not the real us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 27, Paul said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I should be a castaway. Now notice what Paul talked about himself, the way he talked about himself. He said, I keep my body under. Well, the body's not the real him. He said, I bring it, talking about the body, I bring it into subjection. Now what's he talking about? He's referring that the spirit should be developed in such a way as to keep the body under control. If the body was the real him, then he would have said, I let the body or let it or let myself do what it wants to do. But the body's not the real self. 
You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. Old things are passed away, and behold, behold all things have become new. What old things passed away? Well, physical things didn't pass away. You don't change your hair color, your eye color when you get saved. If you're bald when you get saved, it doesn't put hair back on your head. What things become new? Spiritual things. The recreated human spirit. Now Paul refers here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 27 as his work or his efforts are to keep the body under submission. Submission to his spirit. You remember in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. One, uh, several translations say instead of reasonable service, they say spiritual worship. Paul's telling us something that he's done for himself. Romans chapter 7, he's talking about the conflict that he, the real him, the man on the inside, has with the body or the man on the outside. So where the Bible tells us, and this is the, the key, the foundation to spiritual development, Paul tells us that the way to worship God in spirit and in truth, is to allow our spirit man to dominate our flesh. He goes on in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 to tell us the importance of renewing our mind, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove or experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now stop for a minute and consider how much of the church, how much of, uh, in, in a percentage basis, how much of the church really exercises themselves to renew their mind to the word and present their bodies a living sacrifice. What would you guess it would be? 30% maybe? Less than that perhaps? Now, Paul tells us that our efforts to control our bodies and to renew our minds, that it brings about something that, in my estimation, is the greatest or one of the greatest things, truths, in all of Christianity 
and that is to experience the will of God in your life. But you're not going to experience the will of God in your life if you don't renew your mind to the word. And if you don't bring your body under subjection. We've got what I might estimate 80 or more percent of the church that never gets out of a babyhood stage of Christianity. And more importantly, never finds and experiences the will of God for their life. Spiritual development depends on three things. There are three steps to spiritual development. The first one is Joshua chapter 1. And verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Now, some people will argue that those of us that believe in the promises of God, those of us that confess them into being after the instruction and direction of the Holy Ghost, some will say that God doesn't want everybody to succeed. Well, if God didn't want everybody to succeed, then why did God give everybody a simple step that will bring them success? If God didn't want you to make your way prosperous, why did he tell you how to do it? If God didn't want you to have good success, or one translation says deal wisely in the affairs of life, if God didn't want you to deal wisely in the affairs of life, why, why did he tell you what will bring about that wisdom that will bring success? So few Christians ever discover the real blessing of confessing God's word. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. How do you keep something from departing out of your mouth? Well, the only way you can keep it from departing out of your mouth is to keep saying it. And that's what this word meditate really means. It means to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, or to speak. It's a form of speech. It's a form of confession. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Say the word to yourself, in other words. Speak God's word. Folks, we don't believe anybody like we believe ourselves. We have seen people and we can... Use for an example, times where people 
have had a low opinion of themselves and failed to live up to their potential because of their own mouth and their own thoughts about themselves. Now, we may be able to see from the outside that the things they're believing about themselves and the things that they tell themselves are not true, at least perhaps not to the degree that they believe it to be. But no matter what we may think about somebody else, good or bad, they listen to nobody like they listen to themselves. And that's true for all of us. We're bound by the things that we think about ourselves. We're bound by the things that we say about ourselves. That's why it's so important to renew our minds to the Word. Because God gives us, and He's the only one that gives us, a clear picture of who we are. The Bible calls itself a mirror because we're supposed to look at the Word and let it mirror our attitudes and confessions in line with what the Word says about us. So he said not to let the Word depart from your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night Now, folks, according to the Scripture, meditation is to be done day and night. Now, the rest of your time is yours. But day and night are supposed to be given to meditating in the Word, speaking the Word to yourself. There's a psalm that says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Not too many th people think of pleasing God or serving God by confessing the word. But that's precisely what we do. That's precisely the way that we walk in truth and walk in the life, eternal life of God by meditating and speaking the word over ourselves and to ourselves. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth that thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So the first step towards spiritual development is to speak the word to yourself.
Proverbs chapter 4 tells us what the benefits of that will be. Proverbs 4 verse 20. My son, attend to my words. That means put them first place. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thy mouth. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Now the Bible keeps saying over and over again, speaks of the connection between life and the word of God. The life that he's talking about, the life that the scripture speaks of, is the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. It's the life of authority, which the Bible says we were created for. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's talking about the word of God in connection with life, eternal life, in other words. The words that I find to you, they are spirit, they are life. The word of God is the only thing that was created to fit and to feed man who is a spirit being. Hebrews chapter says, For the word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The only thing that can divide between soul and spirit is the word of God. Now the soul and the spirit can't be the same thing because if they were the same thing, they couldn't be divided. So the spirit is talking about the inside, the inner man, the hidden man of the heart. And the soul is talking about the natural mind. That mind that we're given to renew, to renew to the word of God. So the first step towards spiritual growth and development is to renew your mind to the word or confess the word, meditate in the word day and night. The second step is to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. And the third step is to exercise your spirit. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. My spirit prayeth, but my understanding is, in, is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. One of the ways you can exercise your spirit is by speaking in tongues. Paul says very clearly that when we speak in tongues, the origin or the source of those prayers is not our mind, 
certainly not our flesh. But it's our spirit, the real man on the inside. The Bible tells us that when we speak in tongues and pray in tongues, we are speaking divine secrets with God. That's one reason why the devil doesn't want you to do it. Because it's the only way that you can speak divine secrets. It's the only way you can pray things that go beyond your natural knowledge. More than 90% of the time that you spend speaking in other tones, you're praying and speaking things that you don't know what you're saying. There may be certain times where God will reveal it to you. But it's specifically a faith operation. We can't tell by what we hear ourselves say in other tongues, what we're saying. So we have to trust God that it's coming from our spirit and the words that are coming from our spirit may sound like gibberish to us, but to God they sound like praying divine secrets, speaking truths, that affect things here on the earth. Speaking words given by the Holy Ghost that lead us into his will, his plan and his purpose for our lives. Let me close with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul said, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish or is decaying, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Our spirits never age. They mature. They grow in strength. But I'll never be any older than in the spirit than I am right now. I'll certainly be smarter. I'll certainly grow in knowledge. But the word of God will renew your spirit day after day after day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created us in your image. Thank you, Lord, that you've made us as much like yourself as is possible. We thank you, Father, for the work that your word does in us and for us. We thank you, Father, for leading us and guiding us by your spirit. For bringing us into remembrance of all things that you've said unto us. 
for showing us things to come because we put you first. We love you, Father, and we thank you for our goodness, your goodness to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand. Let's make our confession again before we go. You ready? This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and for miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks.